everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. I'm not quite sure how to say this. Batman's been taken by a flying pink dinosaur robot. <laughs> this is a fortnightly comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaquart, Seaquart.org, the best online source for comic books, news, reviews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, we're on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. Well, this is the first episode of 2017, and Woo! let's start in with the bad news. Let's get it out of the way as quickly as possible, right? Yes, let's just get all the uh, trash out and then ascend to possibly positive things. We'll see how that works out. So, uh, news. Comic news. books author and historian Jared Jones was arrested on charges of child pornography. Uh, Jones was arrested at a cafe after Christmas as police found more than 600 child pornography files and electronic media around his house. Oi, Gewalt. Uh, Jones is not a name that I was very familiar with. He was the writer on Green Lantern Mosaic and some Batman spin-offs throughout the 80s and 90s. He's more familiar as a historian. He wrote Men of Tomorrow, Geeks, Gans- Gangsters, and The Birth of Comic Books. He was a historian of the medium. And a very well-liked one, apparently. Well, up until now. Not anymore. (laughs) Um, It's okay. So, first of all, I guess this is going to sound morbid, but I guess we can be happy that we didn't, like, retroactively support him on, like, say, Scott Alley. Mm. So, like, this is a situation where I, I checked. I don't have anything in my pull list or in my library that comes from Gerard Jones, so there's that at least. Um, what a crazy... I mean, what what more is there to say beyond... Once you get busted for child pornography, that's kind of it. Right? Yeah. That's sort of like the end of the line. Um, I mean, hopefully yeah. there's... You know, it, he isn't guilty of it. I guess the... Well, uh, no. I, I have no idea, but the, it's the issue of like guilt... very weird hmm. for him to be like, I don't know, somebody framed him up. Oh, they no, always not, say not, that. Yeah, not likely. I mean, look, uh, the, this is the thing. It's possible in terms of legal... Because like, this case reminded me so much of the last big child porn scandal that I heard of was the guy from Glee, the one with the mohawk. Okay. So basically, the thing is, once they... Like, the news that came out stated in no uncertain terms that he was caught with content, Right. Yeah. As as far as I'm concerned, like yes, from a legal perce- uh, from a legal perspective, you have to go through the investigative process. You have to have a trial, etc. But if they caught you with the stuff, I mean, what is there to defend, right? But um, you know, I'm, I I hope that he's not tied in with anybody that we actually like. Selfish of me as that may be, but. Yeah. Yeah. Odds on that Prime Classic reprint seems lower and lower by the second. Yeah. He I was would. the creator of Prime, which in retrospect is a very, very dark turn. Prime? Yeah. Who's Prime? Prime was the Malibu version of Captain Marvel, the child who becomes an adult superhero. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, Tom, what have you done? Oh, no. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm. That's not funny, Sean. It's it's dark. It's, it's it's like dark and terrible. It is the essence of darkly funny. Like the only thing funnier would have been if he fixated on Captain Marvel. But mm. ew, that's that's about as much time as I'm willing to dedicate to Gerard Jones. Well, are you willing to give your time and money to Ike Perlmutter? Sure, I'm about to vomit anyway. So why not bring uh, in yeah. Ike, Ike Perlmutter? Why not? Yeah, uh, President-elect Donald Trump. Not in my that, house. Words that words that have been said in 2017. President-elect Donald Trump took a moment during his press conference on Wednesday to heap some praise on Marvel CEO Ike Perlmutter while announcing that he'll probably help running the the Department of Veteran Affairs. <sighs> Because Ike Perlmutter knows all about veterans. You know he publishes X-Men. Well, so. he, he actually is. He's a veteran of the Israeli army. He was in the Six Days War. Uh, Ike Perlmutter. What, what, he, what he is is a supporter of Donald Trump financially. And a lot of people said after it was announced that he gave millions, I believe, to the Donald Trump campaign that they would boycott Marvel. And now that he's not just... he not just gave money, he's right in with the campaign. It's one of those things where I'm not gonna boycott Marvel myself, but if you're like, I don't want to give money that goes to this guy, I can't really tell you, well... You know, well, you this, is the inter- this is the interesting thing. Like, if we think about it in terms of discussions that we've had in the past of boycotting versus, like, specific targeted individuals... Like, let's not forget that the owner of Marvel right now is Disney, who I think are very aligned against the sort of ideologies that Donald Trump uh, propagates, right? Hmm. So it's like when you boycott Marvel, are you hurting Perlmutter or are you hurting Disney? Well, you hurting both. And that seems frank, odd. If you, well, because boycott is this. It's, it's a blunt weapon. And if you, boycott, if you decide to boycott, well, you're going to hurt some innocent people. And, you know, uh, we, we live in Israel. We know what it's like. And there's been threats of boycott against Israeli Academy, which are basically saying we're not targeting the Academy. We're targeting the country as a whole because we think its policies are awful. And I'm a left-winker. As far as I'm concerned... Israel policies over the last 50 years are awful most of the time. And if I were an outs- as an insider, as someone who lives and breathes here and is part of the Israeli economy, obviously I would say, no, don't, don't boycott me. I'm not part of it. But if I were an outsider, what would I say? I would say, well, you're part of a terrible machine. And the fact that I you're not see. terrible yourself, I don't know. No, I, it's I, a complicated thing. I really dislike that argument, though, because yeah. it, it, it lays bare the assumption that, you know, that a person's choices or politics are metonymous with the organization that they represent. And by the same token, like, if we're getting into politics here very briefly, because I don't play that, but if we are going to touch on the political issue just slightly, the winning argument that I have seen against the concept of boycotts is that, you know, just as you would not... Why would you assume that Israeli academies are along the same lines... Right, or, or follow the politics of the Israeli government. Do American institutions want to be judged by the choices that Trump's government are going to make in the next four years? I'm guessing no. So clearly, if you allow for some shades of gray in that, right, if Americans do not want to be judged 
individually or collectively by what that orange bastard is going to do, then maybe there needs to be a little more subtlety. There needs to be a little more definition here. I'm all for somebody buying Ike Perlmutter out or shoving him down the stairs or putting him like, you remember in the Gremlins what they did to Mrs. Deagle? They put her in the rocket chair and then they shot her up off the roof. That They could do that to him. You know, just, like, get him out of the house. But on the other hand, it's Marvel, and, you know, the cynic in me is saying, well, what do I possibly buy from them anyway, so... Well, we review a Marvel issue later we in do. this episode, so... We do, but, you know, our, our financial... I think it's country- one of those rare, rare ones. We haven't reviewed a Marvel books in eons. With, with good we? reason, I think, like, deservedly so, but... Hmm. You know, because once, once you make the commitment not to review crossover tie-ins... Is there really anything else out there? Speaking of reasons not to review Marvel books, yeah. uh, Marvel have announced a change in their digital code program. If you remember, when Marvel books made a big jump from $2.99 to $3.99, a.k.a. it's $4. It's not $3.99, it's $4 per 20 pages of a comic. One of the big things that they did in order to like sweeten the pot, as it were, was to add a digital code, which means that if you bought the comic you would also get a version that you can put on your Comixology app. Right. Like the Which, idea of simultaneous access to different uh, yeah. media, but the same comic. Yeah. Which was, you know, perfectly fine. A lot of people want to read their comic, want to support a comic in print, or like to have an issue, but then they don't want to, you know, go back to the cardboard box every single time they want to read it, and so they can just browse it online. Perfectly mm-hmm. fine. Uh, what they're doing now is instead of giving you the very same comic, they're giving you two comics, which, okay, that, you know, two instead of one sounds like an improvement, but these are two old comics. And specifically, every month will be comics that they deem worthy in order to promote new material. So one of the big issues that most people buying from next, uh, next month, I believe, Mm. from February, will be Civil War Zero, which is A, a terrible Uh, comic, and B, a promotion for a terrible comic. And for an event that's already over. And as somebody mentioned, well, you're getting two comics per each issue you buy, but... No, no. But but because a lot of them will probably be the same comic, you know, if you buy four Marvel Marvel titles, well, good, you got four codes for, for Civil War Zero. Well, there's another problem here, too, which is that based on what Marvel have been describing in terms of the changes, the fact that they determine what the code is valid for is incredibly problematic because they're not even taking the the rudimentary step of saying, okay, you have purchased a code for a book by Brian Bendis. First of all, I'm sorry. Second of all, here's a code for another Brian Bendis book, right? Like, they're not even trying to align it according to writers. If I bought something by Jeff Lemire and my code is for something by Bendis, I don't want to read Bendis. I don't want Bendis. Why am I getting this book, right? The fact that Marvel declares that it is somehow, quote-unquote, significant, I'm like, well, Marvel are not the people who will determine my pull list, You know what I mean? Well, they're trying. They're trying very hard, but I do find it very despicable and very problematic because, you know, the the previous initiative, all that did was enhance a reader's access to the same text. They go out and they buy the issue, they come back, and if you want to read it on Comixology or you want to read it on hard copy, it doesn't matter. For Marvel to try to take control of that is 
very, very, very ill-conceived. Why it, not just add the same, you know, add the old issue? Say you get a bonus. Does it cost them money? They want to use it to promote Civil War 2 anyway. So just say you get this, you get the issue you bought and you get Civil War 2-0. Well, I do have it, to it wonder... It literally costs them nothing and they get the good publicity of now you get two free comics for every, for every physical copy you buy. Mm. I have to wonder if that might be in some way a response to the, the sales for Civil War II, or the lack of interest at least. A lot of people claim, I don't know the economy enough myself, that people that have been buying the physical plus digital copy have been selling the digital code online for like, I don't know, 50 cents or something. Meaning they don't want it. They're like, yeah, I have the physical comic. I can return some of the money back. And people who prefer to buy in digital, well, they can now buy in digital for one fourth, one fifth, one sixth of the actual asking price in Marvel in in Comicsology, which makes sense. Mm. And Marvel probably say, well, that's a slice of the pie that we're not getting. We want that slice of the pie. The the problem is, it's one more act of you, you know, met. Just screwing with your readers, and Marvel yeah. has been doing it a lot recently, a yeah. lot. And I, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm really not good at reading the room, so to speak. I personally dropped a lot of Marvel because of tactics like these. Right? This is exactly the sort of thing that got me off the the Marvel train, so to speak. I don't know to what extent these abuses of their customer base are really affecting their readers. Because the zombies are going to be zombies no matter what, and they'll buy Marvel until their dying day, even if Marvel does not respect them for it. So I don't know if something like this would be the last straw for someone. All I can say is, I mean, it doesn't come as any surprise, obviously. We have known about Marvel for quite some time that they will literally do anything for that extra dollar. They will do literally anything. There is no marketing tactic, no matter how crass, no matter how ill-conceived, no matter how anti-consumer, that they will not embrace to get that 50 cents on the dollar. So and you know what? It could be forgiven if the comic were any good, but most of them are just not. I mean, like the if, fact that they're making it... I think... It... Uh, who, who was it said about? Um... The guy who wrote "I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream." Uh, what's his Ellison. name? Ellison. Ellison. Yeah, people said Ellison is a terrible person, but he's you know he's great, so he can he, he can act terrible. Marvel are not great. It's not even about that though. It's mm-hmm. the fact that you know this program could have. You said it yourself. This program could have been tweaked to be pro-consumer in some way. But it's first of all, it's the fact that the the reader doesn't have any control over what these codes are for. Second of all, it's the fact that they're using these as teasers for old events that didn't sell what they wanted them to sell. Because Marvel, for all that they are money-grubbing, greedy bastards, no, they are obviously aware of the fact that Civil War II did not hit the mark of where they wanted it to hit. They wanted it to be a huge, successful event in the vein of past events that they've had, and it's not. No, it's a, it, it's in the shadow of Rebirth, right? That too. I mean, it's not a coincidence that this is happening also in the months where DC have been claiming the top spot over and over and over again. Well, if we want to talk about DC and the customer relations... Not to say... Yeah, not to say that DC is... Well, okay. DC is better. 
Let me put it this way. They are better. DC is better by a margin that is about the size of a single strand of hair. Because here's the thing. Bleeding Cool is reporting that the Vigilante Southland miniseries by Gary Phillips and Elena Casagrande has been cancelled three issues into a six-issue run. It's rare that this happens, but we have, like, the last major uh, time that that happened was, in fact, DC with Prez, so yep. this is not new, right? Before that, I think it was Big Hero 10 or... or uh, some... The Great the Great 10. The Great which, 10. Which was yeah. a 10-issue mini featuring 10 different characters in every issue, uh, one different character in every issue, which ended with issue 9, which was yeah. weird. And that was like Marvel. Like, one issue, one issue. That was Marvel, right? No, that was DC. Oh, that was also DC? That was also DC. Oh, okay, so here we go. Okay, so clearly and this DC is a DC thing. And DC also did the same with, I think, Green Team, which was also never right. finished storyline. or And the other one. It was Green Team and The Movement. The movement. I think yeah. The Movement finished the storyline, at least. Well, so the thing is that there is a silver lining in this particular case, which is that, again, purely according to Bleeding Cool, but they've been right about everything else so far, uh, the rest of this story, the rest of Phillips and Casagrande's story, will be only released in trade format, meaning there's a trade paperback of Vigilante Southland that will be collecting everything. All remaining single issues are now returnable. Now, for that specifically... I do have to give them credit, right? The idea that they are able to return the first three issues that came out and will never, right, the rest of the uh, miniseries will not be released. See, but, returnable is a very sloppy term. Like, we live in Israel. If I had ordered this series, the first three issues, the comic store literally cannot return them because to send them back to the U.S. costs more money than it does to order them. Right. No, so this is clearly U.S.-centric. Is, yeah. It's a very limited offer. It's, a, it's an offer that's really more valid in terms of the United States, right? Mm-hmm. And access to Burbank. But it is a gesture. Now, here's the thing, though. This is the answer to those comics pros who have been, who continue to this day to accost readers who wait for the trade. Talking about you need to support single issues because otherwise the series will be canceled. This may be an outlier in terms of it really isn't all that regular for a miniseries to be canceled halfway through. This is more the exception to the rule. But clearly, DC have three of these in their history. And the Grand Ten was a while back, maybe. Prez was not that long ago. Nope. So... This is clearly something that is becoming more and more of a, not necessarily a trend, because it's not something that a whole lot of companies have adopted as a policy, but it is something, it's a tactic that they are turning to much more often than they should, because now, whenever, I don't know, who is the one that keeps complaining about single issues? A whole bunch of them. Jeff Johns yeah. probably had something to do with it. Uh, but Peter it, David, I think. Well, Peter same. David. Yeah, Peter David, too, has been going on about single issues for years. Here's your answer, right? When comics companies cannot be trusted to publish... In fact, now that I think about it, uh, Rat Queens also had that one issue that has been retconned, right? Issue 16 came out right when the series went on hiatus. It was the first chapter of a new storyline. That storyline will never be completed, the reboot that's coming in March, April, whenever, is starting a new story. I think the problem is that these companies, um, and I'm talking about Marvel DC specifically, I think when it's come to create our own thing, it's more chaotic and I'm more willing to accept 
hiccups, as mm -hmm. it were. But these companies want to have it both ways in terms of relations to their clients. They want exactly. to have the big friendly, oh, we're all a family relationship. You support us, you know, like be part of the Marvel family of the DC family on one hand. But on the other hand, they want to say, well, it's a completely professional and sometimes, you know, things fail and we reserve the right to just cancel them and midway through. And it works with like when TV shows canceled halfway through, it's okay because most of the time when NBC cancels a show, they're not like, oh, you loyal viewers support us and you have the CEO of NBC talking directly with people on Twitter. But with Marvel and DC, it's like, they keep on trying to connect with us and say, we're friends, we're family, you need to support us because we're friends and family. Pre-order, reserve, publicize, talk about it in your forums and Twitters and then the hashtags and whatever. But then when they say, well, it doesn't make enough money for us, so we reserve the right to just cancel it. And you people who pre-ordered, pre-paid for the first three issues, you are now screwed. You are now screwed out of money and time and investment. I think you might be giving DC a bit too much credit in that sense. I don't get the idea of, I mean, you call them professional and not on any planet that I would uh, define that term, but the, the idea that it's on the one hand, when they want to advertise something, they are very apt at using social media, at using advertising, at using any platform that they can to push their crap. Their communication skills apparently start to fail when it comes to following through with their obligations, if you want to call it that, uh, promises, commitments, whatever, right? I mean, this series, this uh, Vigilante miniseries, I didn't read it. I don't know if it's any good or not, but it was solicited as a six-issue mini. The fact that DC feel no obligation whatsoever to complete that in a format that was that it was originally sold as like if you were not sure about the sales numbers and again it's vigilante right we're not talking about a character who has a huge fan base there was no reason to expect that a book like this would do the uh, would uh sell the amount of copies that DC would require it to sell in the first place why not just release it as a graphic novel to begin with why is there this need this this compulsive pathological need with dc to constantly try and shove all of this unrelated c-list d-list content out there in the hopes that someone will buy it and like it and when they don't they don't feel any particular need to at least follow that through we saw this very clearly with prez prez was not good we were not sitting, you know, you and I did not mourn the loss of Prez. No, but, but a lot of people, well, not a lot of people. Not a lot of people, people did. <laughs> Some but that's people the thing. did. Prez Some... had its fans. A vigilante yes. Southbound? Southland, I don't even remember the full time right now. Southland. Southland, as far as I know, nobody talked about it. He had, it had like 5,000, 7,000 okay. readers, which, you I... know, they, they're entitled to their right. Even, even if everybody hates it and 7,000 people prepaid for free issues and were there, they deserve right. to get the story. They deserved it. It's, it's but, like, it's part of the, yes, it's the unspoken the, granite. Uh, it's the unspoken pact between the reader and the company. We pay for a limited story. This story will be finished. And if it's not, we, well, why should we pay for your next story? Why should we? Why should exactly. we? It's, see, there, and there are two sides to this that I see. Like, first of all, you're right. The people, you know, the readers are entitled to get the ending of the story that they paid for. That much is true. 
The flip side of this, though, I think is that it does shine a very uncomfortable light on something that we talked about with with Max uh, last episode, which is the whole problem of strategy, right? DC and Marvel are caught in this loop that doesn't make any sense to me anymore, where they will solicit these projects and any market research that is halfway competent would tell you that it wouldn't work. Like Scott Lobdell's doomed. Remember that? On the other hand, Tom King's Omega Men. But Tom King's Omega Men would have passed some kind of mustard. They weren't banking on it being a high seller. In fact, they tried to pull the plug on, on Omega Men, which goes to show you they clearly had but, no idea what to but, expect but with that you book. Don't, but you, don't, you never know. You, you can know. That's not true. You can know. In certain situations, when you are, A, not publishing any ads or making this character at all significant in the bigger picture, which is all the DC hardcore fans care about, right? Why does Vigilante Southland matter? It doesn't. It doesn't but, tie into anything. But, it's not connected but to But we anything. don't know anything about it. If we read it, maybe it turns out that it was Omega Man level. As, it doesn't know, matter, I, though. It doesn't matter. The The cancellation did not come as a result of the quality. The, the, the reason that people aren't reading it is either there are really only two possibilities. One, the book is crap and nobody cares. Two, the book is really good, but because nobody knows it exists because these are companies that publish huge amounts of books. The market is flooded. The market is is well and truly saturated, right? So even if it is a really great miniseries, if DC wanted it to make money in a saturated market with a character that maybe people are not familiar with, right? This is the wild dog thing all over again. If you do not expect people to recognize this character on site, you have to commit more marketing, more resources to raise awareness of this book, right? This is a problem to show sort of like the parallel example. This is a problem that Ms. Marvel did not have. Yes, Kamala Khan was a new character, but Ms. Marvel was an identity that up until that point had still been known. People knew who, what the title of Ms. Marvel meant. What's and, Vigilante? And they gave it a big push. They did. They marketed it front and center. There were, uh, I remember there were ads for Kamala Khan on buses in California, right? Mm. So clearly, they, you have to have some kind of awareness of what you need to push and what pushes itself. Nobody needs to marketing for All-Star Batman. It's not necessary. All-Star Batman will sell a lot because it's All-Star Batman, because it's Scott Snyder, because it has all of those elements already working for it. The fact that DC solicited this project and apparently were so unprepared for its financial failure that they canceled it halfway through, in spite of, I mean, they have to know that this is going to reiterate the same trust issues that people have had with them from DCU. So to go back on that, and this is after Rebirth, right? This is after the supposed renewal and the new way of doing things and the new policy and Jeff Johns is now co-president and things are going to be different now. And here we are with the same old crap. It's They have a central failure of research. They don't know what books will or will not succeed. They were not ready for, I mean, you brought up Omega Men. They were not ready for Omega Men to be a hit. They didn't expect it to be a hit, or they wouldn't have threatened cancellation in the first place. They had no clue. 
So you have to know, you have to have some kind of understanding of what your readers want, of what interests them and what might interest them if they knew about it. And that means, yes, you have to have the full page ad. You have to have the cross uh, promotional events, whatever. You have to have the primers that introduce people to the characters. You have to have a high profile writer. You have to have a high profile artist. You have to do these things. Otherwise, you get into situations where you put out a book like Doomed or you put out a book like or The Movement, right? Or whatever. Any of DC's failures over the last 12 months. Any of those. Any of them going back to the New 52. Shall we move on to TV news? Let's move on. In, right. It's, this is sort of like the nice parallel. So if we've been talking about cancellations, let's talk about renewals. Uh, Hellblazer, the animated series. Not a yes. hoax. Not an imaginary story. Uh, NBC re- uh, revealed that the once-canceled Constantine series will be returning in animated forms on something called CW Seed with Matt Ryan back in the role of Constantine. Yes. Now, this is not a new platform. It was part of an announcement in which DC renewed all of its superhero programming. So Supergirl, The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, and Arrow are getting more seasons. Not all of them need more seasons, but that's a discussion for a different time. And Vixen animated, right? And I don't... Yeah, I think so. I think Vixen also got renewed. Now, so the CW Seed was, in fact, the platform that Vixen aired on. It is an online CW exclusive uh, website. I think you have to register. I think you have to uh, paid subscription. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not going to bother. Familiar. But you know, it's Who, just I mean, L- it's between L- you and Laser, me, the animated series. That's well, so weird. Here's the thing, though. I find myself. I'm not going to pay for it, right? If it comes out on DVD, maybe I'll take a look at it. But I do have tangential interest here because thinking back, Matt Ryan was really good in the role. But on a CW budget, you can't really do proper Hellblazer stories, right? They were never going to show... Like, you remember at the end of Dangerous Habits when he confronts the three princes of hell and they're all screwed up and ugly, right? That's not really something that you can do on a CW budget. Now, animated you do have the option of more striking visuals that don't tax your budget line, right? Have you seen, by the way, Justice League Action, the cartoon? No. He's there. He's in there. No, it's not very good, but John Constantine is there in, like, it's not even PG-13. It's PG. And (laughs) it's kind of hilarious. In his first appearance, (laughs) he's put under a curse of uh, accent. Accent exportation speak. So he speaks with a ridiculous rhyming cockney kind of thing and nobody can understand what he's saying which is is, it's a funny gag but after that it's just it's the odd idea of both constantine and later swamp thing in this nice pg-13 smooth baby animation kind of thing fighting pg zombies just weird uh is it It, weird it's it's, it's weird it's not because we're used to thinking about these characters in terms of you know it's the horror edge DC universe, even even in the PG thirteen version, even even if the, when they were brought into the DC universe, they were still the outer edge of the DC universe, and this is just like you know, were they though? I don't know. I I mean, look, the last appearance I saw of John Constantine was in a Grayson annual where he... no, we've talked about that uh, DC new voices annual thing 
Oh, right. Well, yeah, but that one's sort of like, that was just promotion. I don't know what that was. I mean, like, the the, the last proper appearance I saw him in, because I wasn't reading his uh, ongoing, is, so he's on Grayson, and it, it was sort of like this humorous little vampire thing. So it's like, okay, I think at the point where you take John Constantine out of the Hellblazer context, he really does just become another PG character, and you might as well throw him around, whatever. Etrigan was appearing on Batman the Animated Series fighting, uh, what was his name? The boy warlock? Clarion, Clarion. Clarion. That was the well, one. Well, Edrigan started as a Jack Kirby concept. You know, sure, he, wor- but- he works in these things. He's a rhyming demon. He's inherently yeah, But by funny. the same... Yes, but by the same context, the reason that anybody after 1980 knows who Edrigan even is is because he was in Swamp Thing. That's the yeah. only reason that anybody... You know, the rhyming and everything came from there. So, I don't know. It's... It, it is sort of weird to see them used in those contexts but on the other hand once you make that differentiation of vertigo was vertigo and it was a long time ago hellblazer has been gone for a while now yeah right we've been in the john constantine mode for quite some time um and if that is where they're at with this character then fine you might as well make him animated you might as well have him date wonder woman or whatever he might as well appear in jl8 having him in a musical maybe sure sure speaking of which Yes. Um, so just in case people were feeling optimistic about 2017, uh, it's bad enough that we've got that orange bastard. But now, uh, a Glee reunion is imminent. Apparently, uh, Flash and Supergirl have a musical crossover episode scheduled featuring the Music Master, who's one of the Flash's rogues. And they hinted without actually saying that Neil Patrick Harris will be playing the role. Neil Patrick Harris voiced the music meister when he was in the musical episode of Batman, The Brave right. and Bold. Right, So... I don't... I think they hope that he will agree. I don't think he's in their budget right now, to be he, fair. He could be. He could because be. Because he's not... Because he's not on... I mean, as far as I know, the only thing he's doing right now is that uh, the Netflix series for a series of unfortunate events, which probably pays well, but he doesn't have that sitcom I, on I, anymore. I think that's probably one of the things that he'll do only if you really like the role. Like, he won't do it because yeah. they can offer him enough money to pull him away. It's just like, oh, why... Sure, right. why not? I get sing and dance and everything. I mean, it's the CW. Let's remember where we are right now. Uh, singing. Okay. So Grant Gustin, who plays Barry Allen, can sing-ish. He had... Uh, yeah, he was in Glee, but, you know, everybody in Glee is auto-tuned, so that's not really an indication of anything. But he did have, like, that one episode in the first season where he gets drunk with Caitlin and they do karaoke, so he's okay. Sean, you speak Greek to me. I have never seen Glee. I'm barely Don't, aware No, I'm not talking about... Glee. Not Glee. I'm talking about The Flash. He sang oh, on The okay. Flash. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so he sang on The Flash in the first season. So, and and he's okay-ish, right? Like, I wouldn't put him on any uh, Grammys, but it's fine. Melissa Benoist, mm, let me try that again. Melissa Benoist, I don't, I think she's okay? I don't know. I've never actually seen her sing anything in Glee, because by that point, it was just like, Ugh. it was Glee. So, um... What do we think about this in terms of, like, a musical crossover episode on a CW show about superheroes? Are we okay with it? Well, I, like I said, I'm not a big TV guy. I'm not a big TV superhero guy. But, you know, sure, why not? They take sort of a claim for themselves as the lighthearted, fun end of uh, comic superheroes on screen. Yeah. Great. Sure. Why not? It's better than the dark and grim alternative. 
We, now, see, we did just be... get the images of the first image. No, well, not the first images. We got another set of images from the Justice League movie, and they look terrible. <laughs> they, so they... Let, let's talk about this. It's it's blue. Dabba dee, dabba die. Um, so this is a group photo from... Is this an actual shot from the film or just a promo? No, no, it's a promo shot. It's like, look how they look how cool they are kind of shot. Okay, so what am I looking at here? I'm looking at Batman, Cyborg, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and The Flash, right? Mm-hmm. Why is it so blue? Why is there so much blue light in the background? I need an explanation here. I don't understand. And where is that fog coming from? There's fog everywhere. Look, what is that? It's, is it... it's a very good, good shot for a cosplay. Like, if this uh, was a cosplay, I would say give these guys, you know, second, even first place in the competition. Even you know, then, I think people would be like, you could find better costumes at a convention. It's, well, we knew it's going to happen. It's part of this strange modern idea that everybody needs to wear, like, an armor, like the post-Jim Lee designs of more lines and more detail instead of, you know... Have him wear a costume. Yeah. Superman doesn't need an armor. He doesn't. He's invulnerable to bullets. Why would he need, you know, like a thick steel plastic whatever thing he's wearing? Well, see, that image is good for something. It does put the lie to something that's going to come up in our next item here. So I'm going to connect these two situations. Keep that in mind, this dismal photo. Um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson has been visiting DC Entertainment. Apparently he wants to get cast as Black Adam, or he has been cast as Black Adam. They've been talking about this one for years. They've been talking about this since the first Superman, since the first Zack Snyder Superman movie. I guess now it's official? Because I I remember the exact same hashtag of, you know, kneel at his feet or whatever, that he was doing at the same time. Ah, so here's, uh, here's the onion, as it were. Um... I want to quote something that he posted. He says, and I quote, something we as DC fans have all been waiting for. Hope, optimism, and fun. He then followed that up with the hashtag of kneel at his feet or get crushed by his boot, uh, which about sums up DC's fun comprehension. Well, Black Adam is the bad guy. Yes, but that is not a character. See, this is how it connects to that photo, right? DC, after uh, Batman v Superman, and I guess after Suicide Squad Bomb too, they have been pushing this narrative of we're going to be fun again. There's going to be hope and optimism. It's going to be, you know, we have jokes now. Make you, DC fun again. L- look at how uh, Ezra Miller can make us laugh. Isn't it cool? Isn't Barry Allen funny? Look, uh, Ben Affleck is smiling. Right? So they are really trying to sell this idea of they've had a creative U-turn and they're doing things differently. But when you actually see the materials that are coming out, I have to say, people, don't fool yourselves, okay? This image of all of them wearing this bulky, ridiculous armor that looks quote-unquote real stems from the same place that it always have. These people are embarrassed to be doing superhero movies, okay? Their understanding of what is cool and hip and what people want is stuck somewhere in the 1990s because... We moved on from all this armor and extra and everything's grim and dark and you have to, it has to be like dark lighting and there's fog everywhere and mist because it's the smoke of the ruins of the drama, right? All of that garbage. We're past it already. We are somewhere else. And the fact that DC 
think that this is still fun, right? This is, this is what they call hope, optimism, and fun. This is what they, that image of the Justice League standing somewhere in the middle of the night, surrounded by fog. That's fun. So don't get fooled, people. Their understanding of what they, what is actually fun and what people actually find entertaining is the same as it's always been. They haven't suddenly had a quantum leap in the evolution of their dinky little brains to understand what's what. You're going to get more BVS. You're going to get more Suicide Squad. I still now, have sort of a hope for Wonder Woman. No. With Patty Jenkins. Yeah. Not, Patty not, Jenkins. I, Patty I don't, Jenkins. I don't know for it to be great. I hope for it to be a decent movie. Justice Look, League I gave up on. Like literally. Pa- Patty Jenkins, there's, there was hope, and then I saw the trailer. And the trailer looks like everything else, Tom. I think it works for Wonder Woman. It doesn't matter what, what, if it works yes, for Wonder it does, Woman or not. It doesn't. doesn't. work for Superman, no. works for a Wonder Woman. In a, in a universe where Man of Steel and Batman v Superman hadn't happened, then yes. As it currently stands, this is the fourth film in a row where you're getting the same visual design. The fact that it's appropriate now for a character for like the first time in three films doesn't matter at this point. If they had started with that, then maybe it would have been different. But now you're, you are four movies in and still pushing that damn blue light. Why is everything blue? Why? I don't understand. Why is it all dark blue? Themyscira, she picks Steve Trevor off the the beach, and it's blue. Why is it blue? Paradise Island has its blue period. It's very artistic. <laughs> but it's, you see, that is exactly like the, the ridiculousness of it all. It Even if, you know, as an example, they could have found DC properties to match that visual style. There are properties like that in the DCU. This could have been a great authority, Right. Fine, that could have been it. But they're applying it to something that is not that. And then they double down on it and then they try to push this lie that now they know what fun is and there's gonna be, things are going to be different going forward. Yeah. Wonder Woman is not going to be fun. Zack Snyder's DC Universe was a bad idea. He should have been in charge of, I don't know, something like the Rob Liefeld universe of movies. That was a crossover bit. Yes. So now that, now, that you've invoked, now that you've invoked that beast, why don't you discuss it? Uh, they, it has been announced. It has been announced. Oh God! That we're going to get a Rob Liefeld Extremeverse, the movie universe of Rob Liefeld's extreme characters, <sighs> and the writers' room is headed by Akiva Goldsman. Now, oh, Akiva Jesus. Goldsman was in charge of one comic book movie before. The much-beloved classic Batman and Robin. Oh a movie my that literally killed the idea of, of a Batman movie for seven years. Oh my goodness gracious. Okay. A meeting of, a meeting of the masterminds, as it were. Well, but you see this... Can you even name an extreme character? I didn't like, even know that was a thing until you just said it. Can you, can you remember the name of any young blood characters? Oh, Youngblood! Because one no. of them was Shaft, and he was not Richard Roundtree. No, I don't know. It, it was a that. white guy with a, with a bow, and a bow that didn't have any strings, as I recall, which was weird. And there was, like, uh, Bloodshot was... Yeah, Bloodshot is Liefeld, and uh, Troll was Liefeld. No, 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 it can't be Bloodshot. Bloodshot was um, Valiant. No? Oh, right, right, Bloodshot was Valiant. Bloodstrike, I'm sorry. That's it. How could I... <laughs> There was there was probably a Y in that name, Bloodstrike with a Y. My, I'm guessing. 
Brigade. Brigade was a Rob Liefeld thing, yes. And Brigade. Okay. Profit. Profit. Okay. And we've talked about it a bit before we started recording. Yeah. In general, in theory, in possibility, a movie based on Rob Liefeld characters is not necessarily a bad idea because... I violently disagree, but go ahead. It's okay. It's okay. Now, I believe it was Hitchcock who said that if you're going to do a movie about something that already exists, he was talking about books, never do a classic. Pick something bad or mediocre because that you can change as much as you like and you can work from it. And that's what, how we took Psycho, a rather mediocre horror novel, made it into one of the greatest films of all time. Or The Godfather, a pretty bad crime novel, I'm sorry. Or Ben-Hur, a pretty terrible historical novel. So, in theory, you know, these are just ideas and characters' names. And a talented enough creative team can take these and say, you know, do a good movie out of them. And in comic, we had both examples, right? We had Glory and we had Prophet. Two very good series directly based on Rob Liefeld's IP that were, well, we, you and I both agree about Glory, right? But we disagree about Prophet. As far as I'm concerned, two of the best superhero works of fiction in the last decade or so. But it's Akiva Goldsman, so all of that idea of, you know, the, the proper creative thing goes straight out of the window. Akiva Goldsman did... Uh, the best he ever achieved was mediocrity, and most of the time he only achieved terribleness. Well, there's also the issue of... I mean, when we're talking about this particular source material, the fish stinks from the head, right? And we were just talking about how like, certain creators and certain executives are not with the times, right? They are a decade or two behind. Here's a perfect example. To even get to the point where you would attach someone, Akiva Goldsman or not, listen, nobody could save Extreme Universe, okay? Nobody could save that. But even if it wasn't Akiva Goldsman, even if it was someone with a shred of credibility in Hollywood who had some kind of CV that was worth looking at, you're talking about Rob Liefeld, okay? This is someone... No, 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 hang on. This is someone who in the 21st century, right, not too long ago, was still drawing and writing the way that he did in 1993. Now, there are certain cases and certain creators where we talk about them being consistent over a long period of time. Kurt Busiek is one of them. Mark Wade is one of them. Where the fact that they're consistent is considered a plus, right? They haven't gone downhill in the 20 years since their heyday. All well and good. Rob Liefeld, though, is a product of a very, very, very particular time in comics medium, right? He came in with this wave of the shoulder pads and the pouches and the spikes. And he that's was what was, the wave. He was that wave, right? He redefined comics. I'm not taking that away from him. I'm not suggesting that his historical significance is less than what it properly is, right? Because he did initiate this transformation of the industry. But... As a creator, he is still doing the sort of thing that brought about, to some extent, the crash of the 90s, right? I don't, he is again, still talking. Again, you are not talking about the creations of Rob Liefeld. You're talking about someone taking these creations and working from them. And which It case, doesn't matter. Yes, it, it does, Sean, because in this case, the source material is almost meaningless. Transformers is a bunch of robot toys that change shape. So what? They still made a lot of great comics from them. 
You're thinking about the comics, though. The reason that Transformers has a fandom at all has nothing to do with the toys. It has to do with the show. Oh, no, no. It definitely has to do with the, with the, the toys. toys. The toys were part of it, but without the show, there would not have been a narrative for people to attach themselves to. When you're talking about, and they call it that, right? They call it the extreme universe. Yes. How out of touch do you have to be to think that the adjective extreme is still used in the same context in 2017? We're past that. So, we haven't used extreme except ironically. Like the only reason that that would be funny is – and there's an example, right? If you want someone to direct your extreme universe, you got to go with someone like Kevin Smith who will make fun of it the entire oh, way. Oh, God. No, no. But that's it. But that's exactly it, what it is. The only way this could work is if you were making a parody of the 90s because I, collectively we're ready for that. See, if we're talking about illusions of people who will never do it but I want them to do it, if – if I wanted anybody to do a Rob Liefeld movie, I'd say go Far East and pick Takashi Miike. Do someone who will do an actual extreme movie, like real blood and gore and punk splatter kind of thing. But you but know, that's, that's not what Liefeld does. Yeah, we're going to get... No, that that's part of what you can do with it. It's not about what Liefeld does. It you is. Want, it, no, no. It's about what you can do with what Liefeld did. Which is a completely different thing. Which is a completely different thing. But uh, it's not, Iron Tom. Man when movie, you, Tom, when you so look at, hang on, hang on. The Iron when Man you, movie almost redefined the idea of Tony Stark. Tony Stark was not like that before the movie. No, but you're talking about two different things here, okay? The extreme universe and the Marvel universe are not the same. Because when you talk about the Marvel universe, you're talking about an aggregate product of decades and decades of multiple writers. The reason that the Iron Man movie works at all is because what John Favreau did was pick and choose the highlights of 40, 50, 60 years of publication. Extreme Universe is the product of a single creator. It is aligned with a single creator's ideals and creative views. Now, if you want to take something that Lee Phil did and make it successful, you have to do what Brandon Graham did and completely change it. Yes, Profit launched at number 21, as if to say it was a sequel to Liefeld. In no other way is Brandon Graham's Profit a follow-up to Rob Liefeld's Profit. But In no can, other and, way. And Wait, hang on. Do it. And they can't no, But if you do that, you're not doing Rob Liefeld's Extreme Universe. That's the thing. You are taking a product in the same way that if you're taking a Mark Miller book and you're turning it into a film and you are deliberately stepping away from everything that defines Mark Miller as a writer because the plot, the plot of the movie will make sense and there will be no gratuitous rape. If you do that, then you are saying this source material is only useful in the most remote way possible well, yeah, and by that hollywood, point that's what hollywood does but why would you even bother at that point it's not as if extreme universe has some kind of brand recognition you and, and i and collectively had when they made the movie yes kick-ass had the benefit of having a fandom that was at the time right remember this was what 2007 8 it at had 50,000 comic readers. That's not a fandom big but, to build But it on. was marketed by a very popular, at the time, writer at Marvel uh, Comics. Marvel didn't officially endorse it, but yeah, it was a Mark Miller comic. And people know what that means. Rob Liefeld doesn't have that. That's That's, that's what I'm getting at here, right? You and I, between us, can't name a single storyline that ran in the Extreme Universe. What was Youngblood actually about? I actually remember Youngblood. Well, the concept was decent. The execution, obviously, terrible. But the idea of a superhero celebrity team, he 
he preceded aesthetics by a decade. It just it just didn't work with it just, because it was garbage. And the idea here's what I'm saying. Technically, the idea of young blood is a decent idea, not a good idea. It's something that you can work on. The concept of here's a bunch of superheroes who are celebrities who have to work. Uh, as superheroes, saving lives, doing the job, whatever, while maintaining good public relation and doing stupid TV appearances to boost up ratings, it's a decent idea. You can make a movie or a TV show out of it. Yes, but if you I'm are just making... Saying, I'm saying Akiva Goldsman is a bad thing because he's a bad writer. That's it. Actually, actually, now that I think about it, Akiva Goldsman is perfect for this. Why? Because it's a Rob Liefeld book. I mean, come on, look. Here's the thing. You're talking about core premises, right? You're talking about underneath all of the garbage and the nonsense that Rob Liefeld spewed in the mid-90s. If you dig deep enough, you find some kind of foundation that with some work and some plastic surgery could be considered usable for a completely different story. In this case, ecstatics is what you need in that department. You don't need the whatever... Rob Liefeld preceded yeah, but, that way. But Fox is not going to do ecstatics and they own the No, run, so they're not going not? to do ecstatics. But what I'm saying is, if you are at the point where the only usable content that you're drawing from this entire deal is the foundation of the foundation of the foundation, like you basically have to strip away everything that made this a Rob Liefeld comic in the first place to even get to the point where you're going to build it up into a different film. So what? If, that's what if again, that sure, is, we, we, no, because sure. we had a discussion in the past. Hollywood right now is in a phase where if you're a producer and you want to make a movie, you have to come to the company for financials and you have to tell them this is based on a comic. Because right now, comic book movies are the thing. You can't just say, I have this great original idea. You have to say, this guy had this great comic book idea in the 1990s. By the way, he worked with Marvel and their, and their superhero universe makes a lot of money. So if these people want to just simply make their own line of superhero movies, they have to come to all these big companies and beg for cash and say, by the way, this is based on a comic, because this is how Hollywood works right now. An original idea has literally no cachet. Everything you have just said is true. It is also the reason why nothing good ever comes from projects that begin that way. Okay. Well, the Nothing, Marvel Cinematic Universe. The Marvel Cinematic Universe did not begin with anybody going to them and saying, "Hey, this is comics." Because at the <laughs> time, this was pre-Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe. Okay, Iron Man was considered a gamble. Yeah. The fact that it paid off and built something forward again does not lend legitimacy to all of Marvel's projects because not all of them have been universally successful. Not all of Marvel's TV projects have been universally successful. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. does not have the ratings that came from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? It doesn't automatically validate every project. And every project that does begin with someone coming in and saying, yeah, this is connected to a comic by a guy that 10 years ago wrote for Marvel once and did this thing, and then people are like, sure, do it. That's how you get Akiva Goldsman. That's how you get projects that have no soul, no interest. They are purely commercial crank-out machines, and they are based on garbage. So it's not like you can even market it as saying it's an adaptation of a well-loved material. Name someone today who swears by the extreme universe, who is not Rob Liefeld. Brandon right? Graham? Brandon Graham doesn't write like Rob Liefeld, though. No, but he likes it. He it said doesn't... in various interviews that he likes it. 
if he like if he liked it, he'd be writing it. No, he's yeah. Still like, he's still, Sean, just because you like something doesn't mean you write like it. I like Tolkien. I don't write Tolkien. You might write Tolkien. I don't uh, know. I've hopefully never, not. I've never seen you write. No. <laughs> but, but no, but that's between, the thing. There's a difference between liking something and writing something. And yes. People, and, you know, a lot of people across the industry say we like Jack Kirby. How many people write and draw like Jack Kirby? Are you Tom kidding Cioli? me? Tom no, Cioli no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. You are forgetting the very critical difference that we have brought up a hundred times already, which is that... You can, there's a difference between drawing like Jack Kirby and trying to draw like Jack Kirby. A lot of people. Most people don't even bother trying. A lot of people do, though. A lot of people make that attempt and fail and get called out for failing. In this particular case, you know, Brandon Graham uh, uh, tipping the hat to Rob Liefeld is all well and good, but he will never write... Like Rob Liefeld, and good right? For that. I think I think we're shouting too much. Oh no! It's just because it annoys me that these projects, you know, that we are are digging up things when there are so many other properties that could be a better use of studio resources. Why in hell? I can't find the logic here in someone saying, "Let's make a Rob Liefeld cinematic universe." Who is Rob Liefeld today? Yes, he was significant nine, uh, 900 years ago when Image was first being founded. But the image of then is not the image of now. Has nothing to do with it. What uh-huh. is he writing that earns him any kind of respect it in Hollywood? It doesn't matter. It's not about what he is. It's about the idea of here's a superhero universe made from comics. That is the most disposable thing you could possibly say, though. Well, it means I that never dis- said Hollywood was smart or good. I just said that's what Hollywood is. That's what's infuriating, though. It's a disposable film. Like by you know, you're saying giving it to Akiva Goldsman is a tragedy, but that's what you do with a movie that you're basically throwing to the wolves, right? There's no expectation. There's not even going to be an attempt here. I for think, this to be I good. I think we're shouting and we're shouting at the end. Of this, no, because it's the I'm end. Mad. Pro- no, it's most likely that none of this will ever come to fruition. You know, they'll talk about it and they'll talk about it and they'll announce some casting and in the end we'll never see a movie or there'll be like one direct to DVD disposable thing. One can only hope. Uh, I assume because they talk about these things, but you know, most of most of the things that we report on, is, like they've announced a new movie, so and so, they'll never happen. No, but, well, we're not really. I mean, look, even if the movie came out, you and I both know that neither of us would go see it. Well, if I get free tickets, maybe. If you did not get free tickets, no, no. Okay, <laughs> so like, but I am not getting paid. Yeah, for this. it's. I've it's if I, if I got paid for this. If you want to pay, support the <laughs> Patreon, and maybe Tom can yeah. afford tickets to go and watch the future uh, Rob Liefeld slash yeah. Eva Goldsman hand. There you go. Not hand. There you Even go. Ju- hand is a good idea. No, no, no. They you you got to go all the way. A movie about hand by hand. <laughs> you got to go all the way here, though. If you're setting that as a Patreon goal, Julius, if you're listening, make it a Patreon goal that Tom has to watch Julius, and review. Wow, you are angry. Julius. Oh, it's Julian. <laughs> I am angry. <laughs> Do me a favor and cut that. No, 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 no. no Julian. Be- it will keep. Let's no, actually, the actual comics, maybe. <laughs> oh, hang on, hang on. Run. If if we are setting this as a Patreon goal, Julian, if you're listening, this has to be a Patreon goal where if we reach a certain amount of funding, Tom has to watch and review every comic book film, including the ones that had David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury. 
Well, Let okay. it be written. You're like an evil person, Sean. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Shall we move on to actual comics? Let's. What do you got? Uh, well, let's start with Marvel. Sure. So, we're uh, talking about the Unstoppable Wasp number one. The Unstoppable Wasp number one, written by... Wait, here's my Jeremy Whitley. Jeremy Whitley, art by Elsa Charitier, published yeah. by Marvel Comics. Yes. This is the first issue of a series featuring a character called Nadia, who was apparently introduced recently in one of the Avengers titles, one of the many, many Avengers titles, as the mm-hmm. unknown daughter of Hank Pym, a.k.a. Ant-Man, a.k.a. Giant-Man, a.k.a. Goliath, a.k.a. Yellow Jacket, a.k.a. Wasp for like five minutes, a.k.a. I don't know. He had many more names, I assume, right? Wife, wife beater extraordinaire. I have many names, and most of them are <laughs> terrible. Um... And the high concept of this is that she was grown throughout her whole life as a captive of the Red Room, the same secret program that was responsible for the Winter Soldier and Black Widow. And do you remember Red Widow? We reviewed like the first introductory story of the Red Widow and then she disappeared completely. I think that might have had something to do with Chelsea Kane. Wasn't that hers? No, no, no. That was before that, I think. Anyway, never mind. Uh, okay. It's this Soviet, old Soviet program that grew up super soldiers and super scientists. And she grew with a natural affinity for science and specifically to the work of her father. And she find a way to develop pin particles, the shrinking stuff by herself. And she escaped from the Red Room. And now she tries to be a superhero in the US. And she also applies for a visa. And the main chunk of the first issue is her hanging around first with Mrs. Marvel, then with Mockingbird, getting into a fight and finding a new life's mission as a superhero. So, hmm. I more appreciate than like this issue. Now, I appreciate one thing specifically about this thing, which is the rhythm. We talk often, and we'll talk in this episode specifically, about first issues that feel like, well, here's a long drag to introduce you to the concept that was established in the solicits. In this issue, stuff happens, right? She has two big meetings where she establishes her type of personality. She has a long, drawn-out fight with a giant robot. And she finds a big hook for the series. The big idea, apparently, from this issue on is that she will be working to uh, locate and expose the work of female super geniuses. To help advance the idea that girls can be smart, apparently. Which feels, even in 2017, something oddly appropriate, which is a great shame about the year 2017, I guess, that we still have to say that, that yes, women can be smart, is a thing that still needs to be said and, and advanced via a comic book for children. Um, the big problem, well, I have two big problems. The first is that this whole character type, the super bubbly, excited, young female hero who's nice to everything, starts to feel like it's coming from an assembly line. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, and the whole thing, as a result of it, is a bit twee, right? It's uh, it's like... it's Yeah, it's very on nice. the nose. Mm-hmm. And it also feels, I mean... And the other big thing for me is that they want to make her related to Hank Pym because, you know, we need to use the name Wasp because uh, motivation and character name and trademark and whatever. But really, the whole issue with her being a super scientist feels completely unconnected. Like, the whole Pym thing feels extremely forced. 
Like, really, really forced. Especially should... when you consider, like, how many legacy characters do we have now who are not descendants of the heroes? Why do we? Why does she need to be his secret daughter? Because Hope was this was his daughter in the movie, so now the Wasp has to be the daughter of the original Ant-Man, I guess. It's, but it's she's one not of, Hope. It's one of those, the, the, the tail wagging the dog thing of the Marvel Cinematic Universe dictating rules for the comic universe. But if that were the case, she would be Hope. Oh, Why right. is she? She's well, Nadia. I assume that one day we'll find her middle name is Hope, like Nadia I, Hope. In, mm. Because you remember when they did uh, the Age of S.H.I.E.L.D. comics and they decided that from now on, Quake, Daisy Johnson is called Sky. Sure, sure. And they found like a stupid reason for her nickname to be Sky. She's standing there just looking at the sky all the time, so we call yeah. her Sky. No, it was incredibly stupid. stupid. Yes. But... <laughs> Like there's two, there are two things sort of glaring at me from this issue. The first is I, I completely agree with you that this seems a little color by numbers. In that, first of all, they've introduced a character. As far as I can tell, she doesn't seem to have any flaws. Her ignorance of how the world works is because she was stuck in the Red Room, but she seems to be adapting just fine, right? She's eager to explore the world, and Kamala's showing her the ropes, and she's doing all of these things. So it's it's strange to find... And, and this is something that has happened a lot with new characters that Marvel are trying to push, where they don't really have the thing that has for so long identified Marvel characters, right, as as being flawed individuals, as having some kind of weak spot. And as much as I wasn't a big fan of, say, the recent Moon Girl uh, series, at least in that case they had the good sense of saying, yeah, she's a super genius, but she's also kind of a jerk because of it. Yeah. You know, there has to be some kind of drawback that makes the character more relatable, otherwise she might as well be in DC. Yeah, the drawback is specifically in her history, but because the history... She basically states, it doesn't affect me. I've decided yeah. to be super positive, so therefore I am super positive. It's not even that she states it. It's that factually, in terms of the events of the episode, it doesn't affect her. It's sort of like, what was the name of that character? Uh, Silk. Mm. Silk, who was it's stuck in that bunker. It's basically the same concept as Silk. Right? Yeah, she was stuck in a bunker for like five or ten years. She comes out, she's fine. And then, without establishing any particular drawback or any particular character uh, flaw it reads like it's a strategy that they're using to try and fast track her acceptance by the readers and i'm not sure that that I, would I work I don't, it's not a bad issue i would say the art is um, you know it's nice and it's it's lovely kind of thing it's not impressive yeah. but it's like it's very it's very smooth edges and everybody looks very human and i like the bit where the character is just sitting in their costumes in a restaurant eating because, yeah, yeah. Why? Why should I hide it? And but, the one thing I did like about her being super bubbly, excited kind of thing, is that we have that scene where she's sitting in the what office is this? Uh, the how do you call it? Oof. The visa office. Yeah. Uh, and her backstory like so super tragic, and we expect the mean evil lady behind the table to like reject it, and she's like, "Oh my god, this is so terrible. Of course, I'll do anything to help you." Which is nice breaking of the expectations, but otherwise, yeah. It, it's nice, but it also, again, like, it's, this is not a character who is bubbly and happy, but is constantly bumping up against bureaucracy, because even the bureaucracy goes her way. 
Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like it, it it succeeds in establishing who the character is, but it fails in convincing me as to why she'd be compelling mm-hmm. yeah. long term. Like, like I, it, it does a lot of things right, and I like the fact that this series has a goal straight from the get go. Right? This is does it? Be, yes. This is what's the goal? Finding female super scientists and helping to promote them, I guess, advance them. Didn't we already have those though? We have them, but the big highlight of the series is that. They have this stupid list of smartest people in the Marvel Universe, and because it's the Marvel Universe, it's literally a numbered list. I yeah. think it's, it's appeared like in, in the old uh, Hulk comics, uh, and they also did them when they had the Hercules series with uh, Amadeus Cho. I think literally that started the beforehand. Seventh, the seventh smartest person in the universe. Yeah, I think that started when they introduced him even before the Hulk. They yeah, introduced yeah, him as the, as Marvel, the seventh smartest uh, person. Fantasy. Yeah, it's like the seventh smartest per- smartest person in the world. And it's one of those things which is stupid but works in the Marvel universe of people literally having a ranked a ranked number of this person is smarter than that one and somebody high up at shield is like moving numbers around. Well, right now, Moon Yol is smarter than Amadeus Yol, so he's number three. And the idea that because all these people are guys and, they, and therefore most of the list, like 99% of the list, these guys, yeah. even though there are smart women out there. And like Mockingbird says in this issue, it's a very nice use of Mockingbird where she's a scientist. She's a very smart person, but because she's a woman who punches people, people immediately think of her, oh, she's this blonde bimbo. And nobody thinks of her as a scientist. Well, see, I question whether that is a specific reason because there are characters... I mean, when we're talking about the people who, in the context of, like, the diegetic, right, on the level of the story itself, the people who are usually acknowledged as the geniuses are either Reed Richards, uh, Tony Stark, Victor Von Doom, in other words, characters... Bruce Banner. Bruce Banner as well. But then you take on someone like Hank McCoy, who does tend to be thought of more as the Beast than as winning geneticist whatever right well i think i think they all they always use them also as a super smart guy and there is this idea it's the super I, heroics i think that tend to sort of obscure well look we're talking about diegetic versus extra diegetic and yeah. i think i think it's a i think it's a good enough use of the idea of the marvel universe to examine something that exists in the real world and yeah it shifts the focuses a bit from the marvel universe into you know, in the Marvel Universe, they, ha- they have super smart ladies, and, you know, the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. right now is, it's still, uh, what's her name, right? Maria Hill, but it's Maria Hill's Maria. an idiot. Hmm? Maria Hill's an idiot, always has been. Well, yeah, there you go. I'm saying, I don't think it's a drastic change. It's not like they said, in the Marvel Universe now, it's a thing that never happened. They're not inserting anything forcefully in. Right. They're using the series to explore real-world thing, which... You know, if you're going to do a new superhero story, at least have some ramifications sure. to the real world. Uh, the, sure. My problem is not with a concept, which I think is distant enough. It's and the not, character. And not, and not even the execution of the issue, because like I said, oh my god, it's a number one issue where stuff happens. Lots of stuff <laughs> happens. The plot moves from A to B to C. It's not like, you know, the, the issue ends like, I'm the wasp. No, no, no. She's the wasp on page one. Yeah. And then she d- does things in the middle, and... My God, the bar is set so low right now uh, <laughs> that, you know, this crosses it in a clear line, but the character is not enough for me. It's too twee. It's too nice. It's, and yeah. I guess it, it works when you do something like Gwenpool because the whole appeal of it is being super comedic. 
Well, Gwenpool or, also has a whole layer of meta yeah, that this or, book or doesn't. Or Squirrel Girl. You know what? Squirrel Girl is a good example. Yeah. Because in that way, they're using her super bubbly personality to express the comedic inherent nature of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, but once you have that niche field, do you really need three of them? Or four? Or twelve? Um, you know. I guess if it has an audience, it's fine. It's not yeah. for me. I, it's no. not a bad first issue, but it's not something that I would follow on myself. Yeah, I would say like it's it's competently done, and I can see it appealing to readers. My issue here is just that it fails to make a case for itself as to what makes it unique, what makes it different, what it's offering that other writers maybe don't have. I don't know Jeremy Whitley. I'm not familiar with his work, but you know, I was hoping for something that would stand out. And I mean, the secret daughter thing kind of bothers me too. I got to be honest. If this is some kind of movie synergy thing, she would have just been Hope Van Dyne. But the fact that she's, you know, she's the daughter and she was in a red room and then she came out, like they gave her Silk's backstory. And then, I don't know, it just, it seems a little repetitive at this point. And if it is some kind of assembly line, then they got to stop with that because all it's doing is validating, you know, the, the critique that these constructs are completely artificial right that they're not story motivated that they're motivated by i don't know quota filling or whatever like it it sort of sabotages their own purpose by doing that because if you created this character by running down a checklist and what have you actually achieved yeah i guess so shall we move on to the next review Let's. Oh, you sound so thrilled when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because our next review is God Country uh, number one, written by yeah. Donny Cates, with art by uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Shaw and Jason Wardy, published via Image Comics. And yes. uh, Jeff Shaw and Jason Wardy can do some nice atmospheric southern tinge, tinge art, and that's the nice thing. That's, um... the, that's the nice thing about this issue, because otherwise this is the exact demonstration of the problem I had that I explained previously, of... As a number one used to bring us to exactly to the point where the plot starts. Well, see, I had a slightly more charitable approach mm. to this issue. Not by much. Uh, but there were... We should explain okay. the plot, I guess. So, basically, so much as there is one. Well, okay. So the setup for God Country is that a man whose father is suffering from dementia is caught up in this very dramatic situation where because his father is deteriorating and becoming more and more violent, they're pushing him to commit him to an institution. He doesn't want to. His wife threatens to leave him. As all of this family drama is going on and this man is really torn between his obligations, an epic storm hits uh, this wherever it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, it ends with a demon being unleashed and quickly dispatched by the father... Wielding a giant, giant, A giant, magic sword. Uh, a Final Fantasy sword. And the sword restores his memory as long as he's holding it. And apparently the sword belongs to some kind of god mm-hmm. who is coming back for it. Now, here's the thing. Basically, um, as a premise, potentially interesting... I do like the idea that, and again, this just goes, we were talking about low standards before. Uh, I'm just so glad that this is not Judeo-Christian God, because I don't have time for that. Right? I'm not here for God, capital G, another one of the heaven, angels, demons, blah, blah, blah. I don't want it. So this seems to be going somewhere else, and for that, at least, I'm sort of tangentially interested. 
Uh, I don't think sort of the main flaw here is that Isn't Kate that says, Kratos? This is Kratos from God of War. No, <laughs> no Kratos would never wear a helmet because hmm. then you couldn't see him scowl. Okay. Uh, so part of the problem here, I think, is that Cates doesn't really spend enough time with the main characters for the big dramatic moment to work, right? There's this huge explosion between Roy and his wife, Jane, and Jane is like, you either have to send him to a home or I'm taking our daughter and leaving because she does not want her daughter exposed to violent behavior, which is understandable. But... At the same time, she seems to be saying that this is the first time they've met. So, I don't... You no, know, they're, like, they're, they've mentioned that they've been here in this county in like seven months or something. But but that the daughter hadn't seen him before. Yeah, well, they kept right? the daughter away, which apparently yeah. is a very good idea. It, well, then it questions, like, so why is she here now? But oh, and he, for some reason, this whole thing is narrated like it's Sam Elliott from... Uh, what's What was the Coen Brothers movie? Uh, br- brother, wherefore art thou? No, no, no. The no, the one with the bowling. Come on. Uh, Big Lebowski. Yeah, it's like Sam from the Big Lebowski. Like in this here county, people say there was a good <laughs> man, a grand man, but the age is just a man. Eventually, I'm doing. I'm sorry, Sam Elliott. I'm yeah. terrible. No, no, no. It's it's it, it is written in very sort of cliche Post- southern dialect. And. I get what they're aiming at, because when you start by quoting Cormac McCarthy, obviously you're showing us where you're aiming at, this sort of grand mythical West, which is both uh, godly and cruel at the same time. Yeah. Which is a good idea for amazing quote, but you're not Cormac McCarthy, are you? He isn't. No, I think Cormac McCarthy would have spent a couple more pages on the family before the storm hits, just so that you get to know the characters a little bit more. It's one of those issues that obviously needs to be double-length first issue. Oh, yeah. Um, Because I'm sorry, it's like you've... I'm not not very connected to these characters. As far as I'm seeing, this drama is pretty about, oh, you know, your father or your family. And then you have the big fantasy element, which is the thing that was spoiled not only by the solicits, but also by the cover, so it's not a surprise. There's, I'm thinking about the first issue of something like Paper Girls, which was, okay, yeah. we have one shock, which is expected, but then we have a completely different shock. Yeah. And this is like, well, it's not a shock. I knew that it was coming. I bought the issue because I knew that it was coming. Therefore, don't do it at the very end of the issue. Because, um, you know, there's nothing hmm. there for me to connect to, and I'm like... <sighs> well, admittedly, we're, we are not typical readers in that we actually read the previews, right? Someone who picked this up off the shelf wouldn't have that context of saying, okay, the first issue takes me to where the solicitations are. Not everybody reads it's, the solicitations. It's called God Country and you have a giant guy with a sword. So when you so? see when you see in the opening issues and you see the grandpa being framed as this big giant guy and the copies keep on saying, you know, oh, he's a big giant guy took three of my men to hold him down. Well, obviously it's going to be the grandpa. He's not going to be forever held down to to a bed. We know it's going to be him. He's going to wield the sword. Yeah, so but it's, not, it's not a surprise. It's not even if you haven't read the issue, you know there's going to be something supernatural going on. It's going to be him in the center of it. Not necessarily. Looking at that photo, you could have just as easily assumed that this was a fantasy story that doesn't even take place on Earth. Well, but when you, once you start reading the issue, what I'm saying, if if he's if the idea, well, if you haven't read the previews, then yeah, this is not very you know, telegraphed. Like we, I'm saying no, no, because we, we story telegraphs very well the spoiler, which is a bad idea for a twist. But that's not the twist. The What's twist the... is that 
having gained the sword and whatever the storm is unleashed, that there's something else out there besides the demons. Well, yeah, it's called, again, it's called God Country. A bad choice, I'm well, saying. I don't know. I think that that might be nitpicking a little bit only because <sighs> it's not necessarily substantial to the plot. Like, it could have been called anything. God Country could have just as easily been a country populated by actual gods. Well, I, I'm assuming they're aiming for more gods in later stories. I would hope so. I, I certainly hope it's, so. It's not, it's not a bad issue. You know, it's... Like when you're reading now. The Wicked and the Divine, you know that it's about gods. So well, the yeah, fact but that gods are there, and Divine, it's not a spoiler. It's not a big surprise. You know, they introduce you the gods on page one, panel one. Here are the gods. This is a story about gods and pop culture. And the the big twist at the end of Wicked and the Divine issue one was a different twist and was actually surprising for good or ill. Now, mm. this is not a bad issue. It's sub mediocre as far as I'm concerned in terms of writing. The art is good. You know, it's yeah. big, nice atmospheric rain and weather obviously super dramatic but it's fine for this type of material and yeah. i like the use of downturn coloring for you know how how super muddy and brown the ground is and you know this is the kind of story where blue coloring in the background actually works right justice league take heed i don't know maybe maybe they're hoping Zack snyder will film this one <laughs> it actually seems more up to his speed you know this is like 300 meets the old west but there are colors in this book besides blue. How would you do well, that? Well, they're all super marky intentionally. So even the storm, it's not like a pure white storm. It's like this... It's sick, green. Yeah, it's like sickly green kind of thing. Yeah. But um, unless, the, unless the reviews for the first arc are super duper extra highly positive, I'm not gonna bother. And you know what? I think it's a good thing because it means that the comic industry is in such strong shape uh, not the industry, the medium in terms of storytelling is in such strong shape that something that 10 years ago would have been like mind-blowing for me, oh, you can do this kind of comic in the mainstream, is now like, yeah, it's just another one. Um, That's fair. That's fair. I was, like, reading it, I did think, like, I have Birthright. I don't really need this, right? Like, Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't necessarily need too many books that are pressing the same buttons in you, sequence in order to achieve the same effect. Yeah, birthright. But, next week we have curse words, which actually seems a whole lot better. Sure. So in that sense, I'm saying, you know, this, this can exist. It's no skin off my nose. I wouldn't necessarily come back to it uh, unless it really does turn around. But knowing what I know of Kate's as a writer, this is probably as good as it do, gets. Do we know Kate's as a writer? Uh, you don't. I read his uh, his Interceptor from Heavy Metal, and he had another one oh. called, I think, The Pastaways or something like that. Oh, oh, I read the first issue of The Pastaways. It's, it you know, it's wasn't okay. wasn't a big fan. No, it's like, he, he is an okay writer. He's not terrible. But the problem is exactly as you say. Okay, it, we are, at least with image, you, you said that, like the medium, I'd be even more specific and say, for an image book, okay is sort of, you know, passable. There are other titles coming out right now that have more promise and do the things that he's doing better. So I don't necessarily think that I need this one too. That's really what it comes down to for me. Like, unless there is something, some other twist that he's hiding and didn't come out in the first issue, I can't see myself saying like, okay... I really love the family themes in Birthright, and I love the fantasy in the urban environment and all that, and here's God Country 2. I don't know. I don't see myself doing that. Our next review. 
It's crossover time. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> Justice League Power Rangers number one, written by Tom Taylor, drawn by Stephen Byrne, and published by DC and Boom. And the plot is this. They meet, they fight to be continued. Yeah. Uh, that, See, that, 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 that's what happened. This, though, this issue was more or less what I was worried about when we saw it in the solicitations, because taking the, the upcoming film aside, right, if we're thinking about the source material here, mm-hmm. the Power Rangers have always been aligned with sort of this very colorful sense of nostalgia and camp. Granted that the Boom comics are trying to be a little more serious than maybe they should be. I mean, Kyle Higgins is really going for, like, dark futures and dramas and dead bodies. And it's like, "Mm, maybe not what Power Rangers specifically needs. But it is still sort of very firmly rooted in this idea of colorful camp. And Justice League, like any DC property, is terrified of anything that could be perceived of as fun. So when when this crossover was announced, even though, you know, Tom Taylor, I'm a recent convert to All New Wolverine. I, I really All New like, Wolverine is really good. I like what he's doing. Surprisingly good. And I don't necessarily blame him for this not being a great issue because even from the outset, these just don't seem like properties that mesh well. Well, like, you can't say they're not doing uh, strange, weird, fun, or <sighs> embarrassed of being high camp because, like you said... Pink dinosaur attacking the battle. Yeah, but... It's a thing that happens. But look at the setup here, right? Like, the plot, Taylor... And Taylor does know better than this, right? But he goes for, you said it, the most cliche, boring... Backtracking from disaster story. Poor... Uh, Opening shot. Poor communication, pitting them against each other, right? Mm -hmm. Why would anyone assume that Batman is a moon monster from Lord Zed? is beyond me, right? The guy, like, half his face is human. You can clearly tell he's a guy in well, a suit. Well, they did mention that the Black Ranger suffers from a concussion while he's fighting, so... Uh, even that... No, but then the fight continues. <laughs> it's like, he keeps going. And, and he says, you know, they're working for Lord Zed, and none of them are like, really? He doesn't look it. And, you know, it's... I will say, Lord Zed's schemes for it, scheme for attacking the Power Rangers... Strangely logical and coherent. Like, Probably. yeah, it's a, it's a smart idea. He's, he's, he, they have their stupid robot, and he can build robots easy peasy. He builds like a fake robot. They bring him in. He explodes. That's actually a brilliant scheme. Not, not so, brilliant, but like things. strangely competent in terms of Power Rangers villains, just doing something that makes sense. Well, okay. we failed with a giant monster twenty-seven times in a row. I know a giant monster. Two things. Mm-hmm. First of all, and I don't know if this is deliberate, I don't know if it's an accident, but the plotline of a Trojan horse being snuck into the base so it can explode, uh, Higgins did that very <laughs> recently in the uh, Power Rangers comic. They've actually done that, like, now, recently. Again, well, this... I assume it's a parallel thinking. It it's could not... be a parallel thing, because I don't know if this project originated with DC or with Boom. I don't know where it started. If it was Boom, then really they're just ripping off Kyle Higgins. If it was DC, then it's just a coincidence because how many setups could you possibly have for Power Rangers, right? Now, the thing is, though, I was bothered by the fact that having brought these two together, it does seem to really be going in a very predictable route. Fight and next issue, obviously, team up. Did you notice that in the art style, like, as soon as they cross over into the DC 
you, everything is like red skies. <laughs> well, yeah. If, and, if you're doing a crossover in the DC universe, red skies yeah, are a must. But then, okay, but but then it's not fun, right? Well, it, it isn't it, fun to. I think to it's a nice idea. The the most of the focus of this issue is on the Power Rangers. Justice League are there as the opposition. Yeah, and I kind of like this idea of these super bright. Uh, High, like you said, high camp characters coming into this universe, and for them this is like dark and scary. Like, why is this guy dressed as an evil, bad-looking guy? Superheroes don't dress like that. Superheroes are all nice primary colors. Yeah, and, and you know that the villains are going to team up too, right? Yeah. Lord Zed's going to team up with I don't know, Dark, dark Side, Lex, Dark, dark side. side, Lex Luthor, somebody, and it's just going to be like that, and then they're going to go their separate ways. And I don't know, maybe maybe I'm wrong for wishing that Taylor had been a little more ambitious because this really is a project. I, I don't you know, think you can be ambitious in this kind of project, right? Obviously, th- because this is made by both companies saying like, let's just, you know, let's see. We You have your Power Rangers, which are somehow popular. We have our Justice League, which are always popular. Let's make money together. Well, they're also, I mean, this can't be a coincidence mm-hmm. that it's, right, it's Justice League, Power Rangers, two franchises that have upcoming films, Right, yeah. that's not a coincidence by any stretch. And Tom Taylor, uh, God bless him, um, he's been getting since the beginning of his work for Marvel and DC. He was the guy who gets the terrible projects and somehow has to make them work. I haven't been reading the Injustice comics, but by all accounts, these are good. And Injustice, the plot is a terrible idea. Remember, yeah. right? It was the Horrible. dark, super dark, gritty universe DC fighting yeah. game. Because DC doesn't have enough darkness. Yeah, right yeah. Now, you know. And th- th- they actually run it for like five years now. Like, you know, five seasons of that comic and it gets good reviews. And only Wolverine, like you said, it looked like a bad idea of a comic, right? Who wanted the next 23, the ongoing series, but he made it work. He made it work. So he's the guy who gets all those shaft projects and he makes them work. And, you know, and this issue is not a bad one. And I can even assume that by the end of the whole thing, it's going to be finally forgettable. But, you know, finally forgettable is not something that will make me read it. I'm not that big of a Power Ranger fan and definitely not big, that big of a Justice League fan. I'm like, I have to buy anything with the na- their name on it. My nostalgia button is not pushed hard enough. <laughs> that's, a, like, that's the thing. I am still reading Higgins, even though he seems to be going further and further off the beaten track. Like, I don't know what I was expecting when he started, but it's not what he's doing now. He basically stated that he's not committed to the continuity of the TV show anymore. Yeah, but it's not even the continuity. It's the fact, like, he's been going really, really dark. And I'm not... Again, like, there, there are certain properties where if you have to apply the antithesis of everything that property represents you're kind of canceling yourself out because you're writing something to appeal to readers by doing the opposite of what they want. It's Jeff Johns in miniature, basically. I love the Silver Age. Let me rip all their arms off, right? Well, he's strangely successful. So apparently people do want the idea of a Silver Age with torn limbs. No, not really. I oh think, my God, I mean... I'm, I'm not up to my part. <laughs> Please tell me nobody lost a limb. Damned if I know. But um... While you, you're not reading it? Um, no, I am. I am reading it. Oh, you're waiting no, for the arcs. I'm, I'm waiting for the arcs. So oh, okay. hopefully, no one has lost a limb yet. But you know, it's 
It's a strange tactic, and I don't know long term if it really is one that pays out because Jeff Johns may have had his fun, but look at how many freaking times DC has had to reboot itself looking for new opportunities. Look at how desperate they are to pretend that they are going for hope and optimism and fun, and they want energy and color, and they want people to enjoy their comics again and not just be about drab continuity, and they have done so much in that department. And that has to be coming from somewhere, right? It can't just be, they're not just doing it for no reason. They're doing it because they think that's where the money is. Uh. So I don't know. It, it, it is strange. It, it's something that bears, I think, further discussion, like in the future, in terms of whether trying to do these U-turns, right? And say, let's take something that is that people laugh at today, ironically, but they still have some affection for it, right? Because Power Rangers was a terrible show. It's on YouTube, people. You don't have to take my word for it. Go look up any episode of the original show. It is rash. It is. But people still have affection for it because uh, whatever, whatever reasons they may be. To then say, let's make it dark and gritty and realistic and more for grown-ups, right? Is sort of, it's the Michael Bay Transformers thing, right? It's the idea of let's take these things and muddy them up and get them dirty so then they'll be like real and people will like, like them more. But yeah, the Transformers movies sell. I don't see them long-term making that kind of impact. But I don't know. We have to see where they're going with this. Boom seems a little more, uh, not necessarily conservative, but I think a little more concerned with maintaining... Like, they haven't done Dark Adventure Time yet, so I don't know... Well, Adventure if... Time is is a very dark show. It's like, it's so... The, no, the but style, I mean, like... The style of cartooning is so bright and sunny that you hardly notice, oh, yeah, millions died in the backstory. Sure, but Princess Bubblegum isn't going to get raped anytime soon. Finn isn't going to start cutting himself so he can feel the depth of his emotions. This is, well, we've talked about limb removals. Finn lost an arm. Finn yeah, literally it... had his arm replaced by a... What was it? A tree arm? But then it grew back and he said it was awesome. Oh, okay. That's it. Like, he loses his arm actually more than once, but every time he does, it's like, cool. He gets like a new machine arm or something. So that, and that, is that not the antithesis? Like when someone in a John's book loses their arm, they're like, my arm! And the blood is gushing everywhere. And then like three episodes later, they're fighting people with cat nunchucks. Hmm. You know, so it's all in how you do it. Well... Lost Limbs, Cat Nunchucks, this is Rise of Arsenal, the miniseries. <laughs> so you see, this is exactly... The, Adventure Time was the DC Universe all along. Oh no, not in a million years. Well, speaking of dark versions of old, naive cartoons... Yeah. Let's do the trade reviews, which I'm excited oh. for, and Sean is greeting his teeth. And <laughs> oh my soul. god. So, okay. Uh, our trade review for this episode is the first six issues of The Flintstones. This is the DC reboot by Mark Russell and Steve Pugh. Um, it was part of an initiative that we have actually talked about on the show before when we covered the first issue of Future Quest. Yep. The Hanna-Barbera verse comic yeah. line, whatever. Is it a universe? I don't think they no, cross no, no, over. No, 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 it's like it's a comic line. It's okay. a comic line. Okay. So the premise is that um, it's basically a look at Bedrock. Uh, Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble are war veterans. Bedrock has a fighting pit where someone gets his face brutally pounded in. Yep. They have deep conversations about fate and evolution. There's an allegory for racism. Carl Sagan is in here for some reason. 
Uh, Tom, I'm going to make you reach for uh, the bleep code in Audacity. What the fuck is this? Okay. Uh, what is this? I will explain. And Please do! Been, and this one has been getting some very, very good reviews. It was the book of the year for two of my favorite podcasts, by the way. Okay. Both, both House to Astonish and Wait What picked it. I wouldn't go that far. Okay. I think I think it's more interesting than good. But it, I think it is... A, a decent book, and it's definitely better than the previous Mark Russell book we reviewed, right? We did Prez. Oh, he was Prez, of course he, he was. Well, he wasn't Prez. If the big twist oh. at the end of Prez was that she takes her, <laughs> her face of Mark Russell, that's actually an interesting idea. But, okay, the main focus seems to be that they're doing the Flintstones, which was, of course, the cartoon comedy family, as a 21st century update, not in terms of it's updated to the 21st century, but to the 21st century of the year of what a sitcom is. And of course, we're in the age of the dramedies, right? Yeah. Where, where the old comedy troops are presented, but everybody is like damaged and broken on the inside. And you laugh, but it's a dark, painful laugh. And I'm not a big fan of the style on TV. I think it works better here, A, because the cartooniness makes the ridiculousness more funny. And Steve Pugh is a very good artist. And B, I like the idea that it's basically, it's it's the Flintstones. In terms of plot and character and the mechanization of how the world works, nothing has changed. It's just the approach to these things has changed. They have the great gazoo here. It's not like they're trying to do it more realistic. They have the great gazoo in this comic. They yeah. still have the talking appliances, which are dinosaurs, which are introduced as a metaphor for domestication. And everything and every issue is like a pick on a certain subject. And yes, the satire is like Press Very Bra, but I think this one actually works. Like the marriage issue. Was it number mm. three? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, number three or three, four. Where they have, you know, people have problems with marriage, not with gay marriage, which the very concept of marriage, like the traditionalists of bedrock protest the marriage group. Because, yeah. because if it's not... Six guys and a dozen or so girls, it's not a real stable family. And I think it has one of my favorite panels of 2016, where Fred goes by the street and he meets two of his friends, Adam and Steve. Yeah. Which are, they are a couple. It's like, if Adam and Steve can't have a family, so neither can I, right? This is a yeah. stupid idea. He has a nice speech about how in his mm-hmm. tribe there were non-breeders and they helped take care of the kids and it was important that they didn't, like... They, they they were helpful and etc. Yeah, it's a very head-on kind of story, and yes, everything is introduced with the satire uh, subtlety of a brick to the face wrapped yeah. inside a concrete, but it works. As far as I'm concerned, this works. Mm. Uh, I, I explain why it doesn't work now. Okay, unmake the, me. The reason it doesn't work is actually for the exact reason that you've cited. Oh. This is not a book that has any kind of subtlety at all. And to the extent that Russell is making, you know, satirical points about today's society, he's doing it in a really, really obvious way to have an entire issue dedicated to, you know, the conversation about marriage and marriage equality. And to say what exactly? To say the most obvious thing, which is, yeah, it's no big deal. Mind your own business, whatever. Um, 
alien invasion in Bedrock. Whatever. There's a racism metaphor between like Cro-Magnons and Neanderthals. Uh, it's not. I don't think. I don't think the metaphor there is racism. I think it's more like working class versus uh, like no, blue color versus white color. But they keep talking to them about like you know, oh, they're Neanderthals mm-hmm. and though they're cavemen and you know, like they make stare, they make comments that could be associated as racist. Yeah, see, here's what I think. It's there's slight subtlety there because it works both in terms of racial. And in terms of economic pressure, the idea that... That doesn't make it subtle, that just makes it obvious. No, like, there's the no... there are two different okay. facets to this comedy. But, but that's that was the problem that I was having throughout the entire six issues, which is basically that, you know, Russell doesn't seem to understand, and this, and I said this about Future Quest too, right? The, the writers that are being assigned to these projects don't seem to understand why people liked them originally. The thing about the Flintstones, if you look at those, uh, the, the old Hanna-Barbera cartoons, right? Yeah, they had that element of parodying modern life by way of the caveman metaphor, right? So whenever Wilma would do something about like, you know, oh, housewives or she wants to go out and get a job and Fr- Fred reacts like, what do you mean? She can't get a job. And then she gets a job, right? All of those sort of like 60s plot points that were talking about modern life. Fine, they did that. To then take that mechanism and repeat it again in the 21st century is one thing, right? If you were still maintaining the tone of the original series and instead of, you know, uh, uh, Barney and Fred go off on their bowling adventures and then Fred bets his paycheck and he loses his paycheck and what's Wilma going to do? Now she has to, whatever, right? All of these uh, plots. That's one thing. But then there are all of these different elements that Russell throws in that have nothing to do with... Like, why are Fred and Barney war veterans? Why are they suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder? Why is Bam Bam not Barney's biological son? Why are Well, he was adopted in the cartoon. Was he? Yes. Yes, he was. Sean, I'm sorry to say that I remember Flintstone's plot points. If so, it wasn't stressed in any way like i have always remembered him as no no he was adopted it was okay even even in the stupid movie okay so we'll say there was a flintstones movie there was a flintstone movie wasn't it with uh john goodman it was with john goodman what was he thinking i i want money we'll never know did he get money i'd be surprised but okay so we'll we'll set the bad man thing aside right why do why, why does Fred have these conversations about uh you know the, the caveman rights and a wedding and you know what if Wilma's gonna leave me someday? Because this these, is how you do a sitcom in the twenty first century. It's not funny though. I think, and I think it is. It's funny because you. Put how it is it the, funny? Because you <laughs> you're asking me to explain why things are funny to me. No, it's I'm fun, asking it's you. It's funny because okay. it, because they put it in the context of this caveman guy sitting in his house next to his chair with the vacuum cleaner, which is a small talking elephant, saying these things about, but, you know, being a war veteran. And the contrast is funny. It's but that's really, not a new joke, Tom. That is it, what... So what? It's not. Most, most jokes are new, Sean. It's no, but you if you're doing... No, 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 no. If, if no, you are doing... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Is funny. Hang on, Tom. If you are doing a remake of The Flintstones and the only thing that you are doing is copying the mechanism of being able to parody modern life without necessarily innovating anything. And then on the flip side of that, in order to to do that, you have to change and add quote-unquote mature content, right? Because 
who fights wars in ancient bedrock, right? That That's not, it's going into all of these discussions about more quote unquote complicated uh, matters that quite frankly, Hanna-Barbera chose wisely in not doing that, right? There well, are I, reasons. Why? These old Hanna-Barbera cartoons are terrible. They They are terrible. That's, the technology of the time, and I mean, no, listen, it's not, and not just in terms of animation, in terms of everything. It's not like it's not like they were actually funny to a to a six year old or seven year old who is watching like the bird uh, play the record with its beak. To a six year old, Civil War Two is a good. It's comic a gag, song. but but that's the point, Tom. These books are not meant for people who are the age that someone would have been when they uh, enjoyed the, the original Flintstones. They're meant for modern-day readers. They're meant for people who are our age, because why else would you even be interested? The Flintstones haven't been a dominant franchise in years. Yeah, but you're talking years. about franchise. I'm talking about this comic. And This I'm... comic, though, is an attempt to pull in readers who are somehow having nostalgic affection for that. And again, like there's a common theme here, right? It keeps going back to this idea of you went and you took the Flintstones and you added all of these unnecessary trappings. What, what have they added? They didn't add. They just changed the perspective. And, and, and for my why, money, money this is see? the best way to use these characters because doing the old thing is ridiculous now. It was ridiculous then, but now it's, the ridiculousness is even more obvious. Doing it like this takes the trapping and the idea of the concept up. It's a Stone Age sitcom family and makes it's not a sitcom, Tom. It's not a sitcom. Why, if this was a sitcom, why is it that I keep seeing, right, the fight pit, the guy gets his face brutally mashed in, and then later on, you have that, uh, that guy who gets his head crushed by a boulder and there's blood spatter everywhere? For what? For what? It's a dark comedy, it's still a comedy. How is it a dark comedy? It would. It, th- those moments are not comedic moments. They're moments that just so, show but, you how brutal life in, in yeah. But they're with something else. When you have these weird out of nowhere conversations between the talking animals about how desperate they are, that's a funny moment because it's a home appliance making uh, existential quotes about about terribleness of his life in term and putting it in terms of public consumption. Recently introduced to bedrock the idea of consumption. Of consumption culture, and yes, I'm not it's in, obvious. Okay. But for me, this obviousness works in. I the don't think I don't. I do not believe that the Flintstones are the right vehicle to make those ideological points because all it does is draw attention to the fact that a you're basically, you know, you're jumping on the back of something else in order to make your own point. Prez tried the same thing, but at least Prez wasn't trying to pull on nostalgia because it wasn't the same character. It was the same title, but you didn't go into that seeing like, oh yeah, I remember Prez. I sure. Think, I think this is the perfect use for these characters. This is no. the only decent use for them because I, yes, I find it you got you gotta disassemble this nostalgia one day because this nostalgia was for something terrible. It's not even a nostalgia thing though, Tom. Nostalgia could not be the reason that Mark Russell is doing this. No. Because it's not. So of course why not. is yeah. why is Carl Sagan in here? Why are they doing the like I didn't understand anything that he anything that he was trying to do in these issues as as anything. Like I didn't get it. Why are we having conversations about how horrible war is? Why are we talking about Fred's anxieties and performing as a husband and worrying that Wilma will leave him? Why are we dealing with Why not? Uh, 
I, I, I don't understand your not Why not is not a reason. I, I'm no, now no, no, not no. understanding you're not understanding. Why not is not a justification for doing anything, Tom. I need I need an explanation as to what a value. It's a story about a family. I can okay. get stories from families literally anywhere. Why does it have to be the Flintstones? Because it's funny when you put it like this and it's... And by doing it's not it, though. Yes, you you brought up you're, no, no, no. You're, 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 I'm saying no, it's Tom, hang on, Tom, Tom yes. hang on for a second, okay? You brought up the conversation that the home appliances have, right? These are deep conversations about what are we going to do? They're using us. Uh, we're lonely. Whatever. In the Flintstones cartoon, whenever you had an animal doing something that was quote unquote uh, humiliating, it would look at the camera and be like, "It's a living." That is a joke that is short, it makes its point, and it moves on. For Russell and Pew to dedicate an entire issue to the problems and traumas and loneliness of the home appliances, give me a reason why I should give a damn. I don't care. I don't care. I I do care. I do care. And, And you keep on saying it like I can explain to you why something makes me laugh. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm I'm saying. saying, uh, Humor, everybody has different humor. uh, That's not what I'm saying. I'm I'm saying saying is I need a rationale as to why these points that Russell wants to make have to be channeled through a medium that was not intended for something like that. And it shows. It is so creaky. It is so awkward. The, the, The marriage issue that you cited, Tom, is an issue long conversation about talking points about marriage. Yes. No metaphor, no allegory, no nothing. So, yes. metaphor. What is Obviously, the point? it's a metaphor for gay marriage. And the, Why? Idea, and the idea that people are so hung into traditions and that we don't even notice how traditions change. Again, it's not a subtle point, but it's a point. And it's a point worth making because we're 2017. God, look who's the president. Oh. It can't all circle back to that, Tom. I'm no, sorry. No, it's not all circling That's back to that. That's not a selling no, no, no. point it's for me. It's not all circling back to that. It is. No. You're saying like the reason that they're doing it is because these points have to be made. But it can't just be about I, that. But they're made properly and they're made in a funny manner. And because it's the Flintstone, they can, it can be made in a removed. The idea that instead they're talking about the traditions of you know relations, but their traditions are different. Their traditions are literally what, getting marriage, the, the monogamy, the tradition of our days. Is for them something new and radical and scary is a point. It's a point that can only be made via the Flintstones. You can't make it no, in a modern day sitcom. You absolutely could. Are you kidding me? The Simpsons do this literally all the time. What are you talking about? No. Of course you can. Not this, the, the kind, fa- not this kind of point. They can't introduce a new tradition saying, well, this is the way we did things then. They literally do that every other episode, though. We're talking about the Simpsons here, Tom. They do I'm, that I'm, I'm every other episode. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, th- that that's the point, though. Making these kinds of points and dialogues about, like, our position in culture, our position as society, through sitcom is a tried and true formula. I need something more than that to justify invoking a 40, 50-year-old license and plopping it down in the present day and then just riffing off that for six issues. That doesn't give me anything. I have seen these exact talking points, minus the layer of allegory, which is wafer thin anyway. What do I need with it? I don't need it. Well, I, I think, don't. Uh, no, I it think, doesn't uh, make no, the no, case... No, it's one of those things we're going to keep on in loggerheads for an hour. No, it, it, and I don't think the listeners need that. All I'll say is I need more from a writer to pursue their works than this just being a platform 
for them to give me monologues, especially when they're monologues that I already agree with. I will say this. I think it's an amusing and interesting series, even okay. some enters. I don't think it's a great series. I get why people like it so much without liking it so much myself. And you know what? I'm going to keep on with the Flintstones. I'm with the right. Flintstones. Yabba dabba do. Yabba dabba crap. <laughs> Shall we do our new, newly patented, let's talk about things we like because most of the stuff we talked about. Oh, I, God, one of us didn't please. Like. Please do because this has not been so, a good since, since you've been so <laughs> mad with this comic, t- tell us about something good you've read recently. I have been mad. Okay, well, I recently uh, finished the first arc of Animosity by Marguerite Bennett. And if I'm not mistaken, the art is by uh, Raphael De La Torre. Very interesting series. It's about, uh, like we mentioned last week, animals who suddenly gain sentience and what actually changes in society as a result of that. Done with a little more cleverness than the Flintstones, I might say. Um, what else? Uh, hmm. What about you? What have you been reading? Well, uh, I've recently finished a short uh, graphic novel, Artificial Flowers, by Rachel Smith. It's mm-hmm. a very nice, small, slice, well, kind of slice of life story about an artist who has to take her young brother in for, uh, like, a proper gallery artist who has to take her youngish brother for the weekend, and he's a pyromaniac. Oh! <laughs> Awkward. Yeah. And it's, it's, okay. a nice, it's a nice, small kind of story. It's very delicate, and I really like the way Rachel Smith is advancing her sort of cartooning. Yeah. And since we've talked about Rob Liefeld, oh. I'm rereading Prophet in preparation for the Earth War trade, which it should come out while we record this, actually. Well, you know that means you have to start with issue one, don't you? Yeah, well, I'm... <laughs> oh, you bet. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I reread Brandon Graham and Simon Royce and there's Paul Pope. There are many people involved in Prophet, and it's even better in rereads, this magnificent grand space saga, which start mm-hmm. with one guy just walking around the Earth doing something for reasons he doesn't understand, and then slowly growing and growing into this epic galaxy-wide war. Mm-hmm. And it's just, for me, this is how science fiction comics should should be done. Something is Earth War you... the finale? What? Is it the finale of the series, or just the finale uh, of the Earth arc? War is the final issues, yes. It's the final oh. collection. It should come okay. out this weekend. Well, so when it was running for how many years now? Oh, it ran for a lot of time, but the last the Earth War stuff was hugely delayed. Mm, okay. Have you picked anything else while I was babbling on and on about it? Um, well, I will mention that Peter Panzerfaust finally ended. <laughs> Long uh, okay, so I did get some of the emotional resonance at the end because Weeby really does manage to end it on a solid note. Uh, you can tell that it was rushed because about halfway through the issue, the backgrounds disappear. So it's all just like white. And I was like, okay, I recognize that this issue is not the best possible version of the issue that could have seen light of day. And I guess if you're going to have any closure at all, that's kind of how you have to do it. But uh, it was a good ending. I'm planning on rereading the series because I didn't remember half of the plot lines by the time I got to it. (laughs) But um, yeah, also I have a very strange and unclear uh, relationship to a book called The Double Life of Miranda Turner. This came out, it was seven issues that came out through, sorry, nine issues that came out through Monkey Brain by George Cambades and Jamie S. Rich. 
Mm-hmm. It's about uh, a girl who finds out that her sister was a vigilante who was murdered. The sister's ghost advises her on like taking her place. Interesting stuff, but it, because it's monkey back, it sort of evaporated at the end of the first arc. And I don't know if there's more of it, if there's less. Kind of like Edison Rex in that way. I don't know if they're they're heading towards something bad, monkey brains, or if it's just creator-owned uh, hiatus. But I do recommend checking it out, The Double Life of Miranda Turner. And I should mention that I've started, not yet finished, We Told You So, Comic as Art, The Oral History of Fantagraphics, written mm-hmm. by Tom Spurgeon with pretty much everybody who has ever been with or at Fantagraphics giving their bit. And it's a fascinating piece about a fascinating company, which is important part of the comic medium, I'd say. Absolutely. Yeah, even, even if I... My, I think I have, at this point, more pages of the book than I ever read pages of a Fantagraphic comic. <laughs> well, Fantagraphic comics, I mean, the majority of them tend to be very, very specific in terms of their target audiences. Yeah. So, it's understandable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anything else? Uh, no, that'll do for now. That'll I feel do. marginally that'll better. That'll do, Sean. That'll do. <laughs> I feel marginally better. <laughs> uh, so, for the Smorgasbord, I'm Sean. I'm Tom Shapira. Until next time. Bon appetit.